three words that can be hard for Christians of any age to deal with. Life's not fair. Life's not fair. And yet we have the assurance that the judge of all the earth will do right. Genesis chapter 18 and verse 25. That Jesus is the one appointed to judge the living and the dead. Acts 10 and verse 42. Sometimes we sing a song, there's a great day coming. But its brightness will only come to them that love the Lord. For others it can be a sad day. I want you to stop and think about the fact that the judgment is a clear indication that God does what's right. That God really is a righteous judge. Everything does not get settled in this world, does it? Often those who do right may suffer, while those who are wicked prosper. You think of Luke 16, verses 19 through 31, the rich man and Lazarus. In this life, the rich man fared sumptuously. He was blessed and blessed abundantly. Lazarus would have eaten the crumbs off the table of the rich man. But Jesus, in that account, speaks of a reversal of fortune that takes place after death. And now it's Lazarus who is blessed and the rich man who knows punishment. Yes, the judgment is a clear indication that things that were not settled here will be settled by God at the judgment. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 27 through 31 teaches the same truth. You think about the goodness of God in sending Jesus to go to the cross for us, and if one rejects that, see to it that you refuse not him who speaks. Hebrews 12, 25. For one who does, Hebrews 10, 31, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Yes, you have God's justice on the one hand that will make things right, and yet you also have the provision of God's love. What can be the response of God to those who reject His Son? Only certain judgment. This morning we talked about some surprises on the Day of Judgment, and we'll continue that theme. I'll briefly review some things that we looked at this morning, and we'll continue to build on what was discussed. Open your Bibles to Matthew 25, and in Matthew 25 you have at least a couple of parables taught by Jesus shortly before he would be taken away, tried, and crucified. In Matthew 25 you have a parable about some wise and foolish women. Part of a bridal party they were. And what I ask you to remember about Matthew 25, 1 through 13, is this. Eternity matters 
Therefore, make adequate preparation. Because on the day that Jesus speaks about, and certainly this will be true of Judgment Day, there will be many who have made inadequate preparation. Make adequate preparation. Remember the foolish ones in that uh, particular parable? While they were moral and chaste, while they had lamps, while they had oil, and while they initially waited, they are conspicuously like Matthew 7, 24 through 27. And people who are foolish builders who hear the sayings of Jesus but do not properly and adequately build their lives on that. Amos 4 and verse 12 says, Prepare to meet your God. Make adequate preparation. Preparation matters. One does not make adequate preparation by failing to be part of the body of Christ, the church. One does not make adequate preparation by failing to be baptized for the forgiveness of sins. One does not make adequate preparation by not wanting to worship God in spirit and truth. One does not make adequate preparation who is in love with the world more they are in love with the Lord. Look at Matthew 25, 14 through 30. This particular parable is about talents. A vast amount of wealth invested in three individuals. One five, one two, one one talent. Even one talent is very, very big an investment to make in an individual. The point behind this particular parable is this. Eternity matters. Be good stewards of God's gifts and blessings. In the sermon I mentioned this morning, four areas especially that we need to think about our stewardship, our management of God's gifts and blessings. I mentioned time. Every person has 168 hours in a week. Every person has 24 hours in a day. How we use our time matters. Redeeming the time for the days are evil, Ephesians 5 and verse 16. Secondly, we talked about the stewardship of our talents and blessings. Our minds, particular areas of life where we may have gifts, maybe encouraging, maybe cooking, maybe card writing, Maybe personal work, personal evangelism. Maybe teaching. Maybe working with young people or singing praise or writing hymns. Using gifts that God has given us to praise and honor Him. Again, being a good manager of our finances... It seems to me that this is one of the areas where it's the least we can do. But it needs to apply to our gifts and blessings across the board, our talents. And it needs to apply to our time. But certainly our finances. But finally, life itself. 
only one life will soon be passed. And for some in this assembly, it's going to be passed a whole lot sooner than for others. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. For to me to live is Christ, to die is gain. Philippians 1.21 Then we look at verse 31 through 46. And what Matthew 25, 31 through 46, technically it is not a parable. Though it has parabolic elements. The ending, Matthew 25, 46, sounds like a parable's ending. Where the righteous and the wicked go. There are parabolic elements. But it's really a prophetic discourse. Jesus is fast-forwarding ahead to what it is going to be like when we stand before him at the judgment. Eternity matters. And we show that when relationships matter to us. Our relationship to God and our relationship with others. Talk about the great commandment, Matthew 22, verses 34 through 40. That's what this is about. Now, if I really want to be prepared for judgment, make adequate preparation, understand that gifts and talents need to be managed well because we consider the source. And we're going to give an account to the Lord and seek to relate to God and to others in a way that makes God smile from up above. There will be surprises on the day of judgment. A lot of them. God won't be surprised, but a lot of people will be. We talked about these quickly. Some will be surprised at the reality of judgment day. Didn't really think it was going to come. Pointed to a man once to die, though. After that, the judgment. There'll be those that are surprised that Jesus is the judge. You know, there's a whole lot of ways people can get to heaven. They're going to be very surprised and shocked to find out that Jesus is the only way. Those who rejected him or refused to believe in him Surprises at the judgment. You keep looking at the text. Some will be surprised at the time of the judgment. When Jesus comes, he will take the kingdom and deliver it to the Father. 1 Corinthians 15, 24 through 26. There's not going to be all kinds of signs prior to the second coming of Jesus. Of that day and hour knows no man, Matthew 24 and verse 36. I was talking with Brother Boyd after services this morning, and he was talking about how this has continued. I see no reason why I should think it's going to stop. I wish it would. People trying to set dates and determine times about when the Lord will come. It seems to me it's just a better idea to make adequate preparation, consider where our gifts come from and use them appropriately and try to have a right relationship with God and others. Continuing, some will be surprised at the purpose of judgment. 
The purpose of judgment is basically to give the sentence. To give the sentence of eternal life or eternal punishment, condemnation. Matthew 25 and verse 46. It only makes sense that a person will know something about their eternal destiny when they pass from this life and where they go when they die. Now let's look at a few extras. Some people will be surprised at the standard for judgment. Jesus said, the word that I have spoken, the same will judge you in the last day, John 12 and verse 48. Paul said that it is by my gospel that you will be judged, Romans chapter 2 and verse 16. No wonder why scripture says, study to show yourself approved unto God, 2 Timothy 2 and verse 15. A lot of people are going to be surprised at the standard of judgment, but we will not be judged simply on the basis of our sincerity or of having a good conscience. Acts 23 and verse 1, Acts 24 and verse 16. I'm not saying those things don't have a place, but we will be judged especially by our compliance or lack of compliance with what the Word of God says. And whether we respond to that sincerely and in good conscience. Again, some will be surprised on the day of judgment. Many will. They'll be surprised at the basis of judgment. You know, when we stand before Jesus, the Bible says we will give an account for the things we have done. 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 10. For our deeds... Matthew 16 and verse 27. For the things we have done, our works. No, this passage is not talking about earning or meriting our salvation by our works. It is simply talking about that a faith that saves is a faith that works. James 2, 14 through 26. Now... The Word of God also says that we will give an account for our words. Matthew 12, 36 and 37. Our deeds and our words. Scripture speaks of God and how He is a discerner of the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Hebrews 4, verses 12 and 13. And that's something to think about too. Because the one before whom we stand will judge us according to our deeds, according to our words, and according to his knowledge, his perfect knowledge of our hearts. You ever done the right thing for all the wrong reasons? And as a, after a while you became proud or pharisaical? He'll judge the thoughts and intents of our heart. Number seven, there will be some surprises on the day of judgment because of the place where judgment began. 
There will be some surprises on the day of judgment because of the place where judgment began. Take your Bible and turn to 1 Peter chapter 4. In 1 Peter chapter 4, notice verse 16. It's a well-known passage. It says, If any man suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but rather let him glorify God in this behalf. But keep reading 1 Peter chapter 4. 1 Peter chapter 4. And notice what's said in verse 17 with me. It says, It is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. Mark that. The place where judgment begins is a little bit surprising. It begins with the people of God. If it begins with us, Peter writes, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore let us who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. What does this mean? Every chapter in the five-chapter book of 1 Peter mentions suffering for the cause of Christ. Look at 1 Peter 1, verses 6 through 8. And the purpose of the suffering of Christians is to purify, to mature, and make us more like Jesus. Anything that will purify and mature us and make us more like Jesus is ultimately for our good as it prepares us for the judgment. Wouldn't you agree? We seldom think of suffering, especially for the cause of Christ, suffering for well-doing in that vein. But every chapter of 1 Peter talks about suffering, and that's the emphasis given to it. And the idea is this. If Christians suffer in order that we can be purified, made more mature, and made more like Jesus here, when we didn't deserve it, what of those who deserve the wrath and judgment of God and how horrific will be the judgment that awaits them. That's the idea. Even in this life, suffering can have a purpose for us as Christians. We say jokingly, none of us gets out of this world alive. And some of us will go through times of difficulty and suffering. Some of you are and have. And sometimes that suffering is going to be especially related to the fact that we want to serve Jesus. And when suffering comes for the sake of Jesus... We ought to thank God that it can purify, mature us, and make us more like Jesus. Maybe we ought to pray that God make us better people 
through the furnace and trial of suffering. Now let's have a little fun with this passage. Having gone through the surprises of the passage, God is the star of every passage in Scripture. You have heard me say this so often, I'll say it a slightly different way. God is the star of every passage in Scripture. Because the Bible is a book from God, about God, and the relationship He wants to have with us. So go back to Matthew 25 and notice this. See how Jesus is described. In Matthew chapter 25, by the way, seven different descriptions of Jesus just in this one passage. You ought to preach it. Matthew 25 verse 31. He is the Son of Man. This refers to the fact that he is God, Daniel 7, verses 9 through 14. This refers to his humanity, but it's about his glory here. The one who came initially to Bethlehem, born of a virgin. Nothing flashy. Everything about his entry into the world was certainly inauspicious. But everything about his second coming as judge is glorious. Keep looking at the passage, Matthew chapter 25. Look at verses 32 and 33. He is the shepherd, a shepherd who separates. He separates the sheep from the goats. He is the good shepherd, John 10, 11 through 18. He is the chief shepherd, 1 Peter chapter 5 and verses 1 through 4. He is the great shepherd, Hebrews 13, verses 17 through 21. Keep looking. He is the king. The king. So says verse 34 and verse 40. Who is Jesus? He's the king, the son of man. Who is Jesus? The shepherd. Who is Jesus? The king. Fourth, who is Jesus according to this passage? Look at verse 34. He uses the expression, my father. Therefore, he is God's son, the son of God. Who is Jesus? The son of man, the shepherd, the king, the son of God. Verse 37 and 44. Verses 37 and 44. He is the Lord. He's the Lord. Notice verse 40. Who is Jesus? In as much as you did it, verse 40, to the least of these, my what? What? He is our brother. He identifies with us. Isn't that a wonderful thing? He considers us family. That's my people. That's what Jesus is saying. And then number seven in the whole context of Matthew 25 verses 31 through 46 shows this. He is the judge. 
He's the judge. Shall not the judge of all the earth do right? Now, when you study a passage like Matthew 25, 31 through 46, any passage, see what it says about God, but also see how it's built. You see, what they say is inspired, but how they build it, Milton, how they build it, Joe, how the Holy Spirit works through these writers to build is amazing. Look at Matthew chapter 25, verses 31 through 33. What you have here first is this. When Jesus tells this story, he gives the setting. He speaks of himself as the shepherd who separates the sheep and the goats. You know, in Acts 20, it talks about wolves in sheep's clothing, Brian. Here, it talks about goats with the sheep. Interesting. But you have the shepherd and the separating in the setting. Verses 31 through 33. Verses 34 through 40. A second area. You have... The sheep, the righteous, sentenced. The sheep, the righteous, sentenced. Verses 34 through 40. Involved in this are four points, four thoughts. The sentencing, verse 34. Come. Come. Enjoy the blessings that have been prepared for you. Enter the kingdom. Prepared for you from the foundation of the world. See all of that? The sentencing. And then what you have is a basis. And it's what Joe Prieto read in the scripture reading this morning. I was hungry. You fed me. I was thirsty. You gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to see me. Then you have a question. When did we see you? When did we see you in that position, Lord? And you have the answer. And as much as you did it to the least of these, my brethren, you did it to me. And verse 40. Now verses 41 through 45, you have Christ's sentence on the unrighteous. On the goats. And notice that when you get to the sentencing, it has to do with a curse. It has to do with the place prepared. Though initially prepared for the devil and his angels, 
It's also prepared for the unrighteous, the ungodly, the wicked. And those will have Jesus say, speaking of six matters again, hungry, thirsty, a stranger, not properly clothed, sick and you didn't visit me, in prison and you didn't come to see me. And they'll ask the same question, when? When did we see you? And you have an answer from the Lord. Inasmuch as you didn't do it to the least of these, you didn't do it to me. You see, what the Lord does is link the way that we relate to other people with the way we relate to God himself. And that ought to cause all of us to pause and think about how we relate to others and how it depicts our relationship with God. In looking at this, here's a simple way to study a passage that I want to share with you. I've mentioned look for the Lord, look for God. I've mentioned see how a passage is built. Let me share with you a three-step process that anybody can do. A young person can do this. A person that's been a Christian for many years can do this. Three steps. A light bulb, a question mark, an arrow. Now let me describe each. A light bulb. When you're studying God's Word, look at what shines and what really is meant to grab our attention. You can put a light bulb. Bing! What's God wanting to get across there? About Himself, about His Son, about His will for us. A question mark. Put a question mark on a piece of paper. What questions might you have about this particular passage? What questions might others have about this passage when they study it? And then an arrow. God is a master with the scalpel and the sword. What hits your heart in this passage? What arrow lets you know he was aiming right at you? Now I briefly go through these and just give you some examples. What was the first one? Light or light bulb? Matthew 25, 31 through 46 contains between 45 and 50 personal pronouns just about Jesus. Between 45 and 50 just about Jesus. And that doesn't include like Son of Man, Shepherd, Lord, etc. The King. 
That's just those little pronouns like I and me and my. Judgment is about how we relate to the king who's our judge and how we relate to those created by the king. Light bulb. Question mark. What questions might a person have about this text? I'll tell you one. May have to do with culture and history. How is it that a shepherd's taking care of both the sheep and the goats in this story and then separates them? Why would he have them together and why would he separate them? I think the answer to that by looking at Scripture and considering the times would be really helpful, don't you? And then, who is intended by the term brethren, Matthew 25, verse 40? Inasmuch as you did it to the least of these, my brethren... The text, the weight of the text, when you study this one, has to do with fellow Christians. When you look at the use of the word brethren in the Gospel of Matthew, you know, Jesus would say in Matthew chapter 12, verses 48 through 50, that the one who does the will of God is my brother and my sister, my family. Matthew 23, verses 8 through 10 would speak about not calling someone rabbi or have no instructor because Jesus is really your instructor and we are brothers. Matthew 28, verses 8 through 10 would talk about the brethren go to the brethren, his followers. And so the weight of the evidence, when you look at the least of these, my brethren, and it makes sense. Brothers and sisters that might be sick are persecuted from the cause of Christ. How about 2 Timothy chapter 4 when Paul writes, At my first defense, nobody stood with me. Think somebody should have been visiting him? Somebody should have been there for him? We need to be there for one another, not just in times of sorrow and sickness and grief. We need to be there, especially for others, in times of trial and suffering for the cause. And I wonder if we're really complying with Matthew 25 when that is not thought about enough. He would write, only Luke is with me. I wonder how many times it had been Luke who was with him. And I think that every Christian needs to be encouraged by brothers and sisters to remember that there may be times we can't be there, but there won't be a time that the Lord can't be. 
I have a brother that preaches and has preached someplace for 28 years and he doesn't know if he's going to be able to stay there much longer. He's preached the word. He's done a great work. I can pray for him, but he's going through a trial in his soul. I'm sure you know people like that too. How about missionaries like Rod Kyle? I think of his dear wife, Gay, passing away a few years ago. Sometimes just an email or a card can really lift that brother's spirit, don't you think? We thank God for him, and we've had a long relationship with him. He knows something about hurt and loss. You do too. And you know how wonderful it is when you have a church family to gather around you to help you. That brings me to the last one. What was the last one? An arrow. The Lord of heaven and earth, the Lord of creation, says that we are saying a lot about our relationship with him by the way we help those who are hungry and thirsty, who are strangers, who are not adequately clothed, etc. That hits me in my heart. Because when we stand before him on the day of judgment, it will not just be about where we part of the one church as important and crucial as that is. It will not just be part of are you baptized for the forgiveness of your sins as crucial as that is. It will be did we relate to others in a way that showed our real relationship with God. May we want that. And may we desire that as much as anything in the world relate to others in a way that shows that we have a real relationship with God. Amen. Thank you for your time and for listening. What a great section of scripture. We're about to stand and sing our song of invitation. Much has been said by way of invitation already. I want you to know what the most surprised thing will be at the judgment. It'll probably be me that by his grace he saved me and he allows me to be in his presence forever in heaven. Isn't that amazing? Let us stand and sing.